1: Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant Black woman magic mind, and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us, and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. Well, let's do it then. What's up with Mahalia? Pulled up in a little snatched up
0: poof. Right? Mahalia is coming in very casual this morning.
1: Well, Jules, she, she missed her appointment with Sakina. Mm. which uh, she is not pleased about. And on top of that, she joined me on a very hilly five mile run yesterday. I was pushing myself a little more than usual. And, um, you know, she is not really much to look at today, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) I beg to differ.
1: Well, she appreciates you. And, you know, to those who are new to this podcast, Mahalia is Dr. McMullen's hair and Jules is my hair. And we believe that hair should be properly addressed by name.
0: Absolutely. It's one of the tenets of this show.
1: Right. (laughs) Did you learn anything this last week? So I am reading a book that you've probably read before, because I think we chatted a little bit about this once before, The Color of Law. I
0: have the book. I have not read it because I'm not ready for it yet.
1: I don't think I was ready for it. Both of us work um, in a diversity, equity, and inclusion space. We care about justice and health equity. And I'd always seen this book like propped up in the background of somebody's Zoom or like Mm -hmm. somebody like which mention it or whatever. But I never listened, you know, listened to or read the book. I'm listening to it on audio right now, and it, um, it, it is giving me a lot of distress. So what am I learning? I'm learning on um, the book um, so that for those who don't know, the book is really outlining the historical um, aspects through law and through legislation and through just th- through organized processes that Black Americans were held back from becoming property owners and missed opportunities to gain generational wealth. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I thought I knew about redlining, right? I thought like, oh, yeah, I know about redlining. But I just never knew the extent to which, you know, the FHA was involved and how prevalent it was everywhere. Like this mm-hmm. was happening on the West Coast and in the places that were thought to be like liberal. It was just written into law everywhere. So the reason why that matters is that, you know, we know that one of the biggest steps toward you know, any type of generational wealth or opportunity is home ownership, the Mm -hmm. opportunity to own property. And this book really underscores why schools sucked and why places were like overcrowded. Um, Because if you were black and you got a house in a particular neighborhood, they would make the um, mortgage way higher than it should be, which means you need to divide your house out and then bring in tenants. It was a hot mess, man. And yeah. I, 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 to make myself feel better, Ash, I'm not trying to, you know, cause right now what I've done, I've just poured all my distress onto you, yeah. <laughs> which is jacked up, but okay. But you know, I'm an optimist. So the, the positive is we come from a resilient people. Dang. I mean, when you think already about what we know about the people who endured being enslaved. Yes. And then figured out over candlelight how to learn how to read and then figured out how to, you know, make it through all kinds of horrific physical, sexual, verbal abuse and still make it Mm -hmm. only to get out of all of it and then have laws written into place that say, you know what, we're going to write these laws so that we guarantee you're going to lose. Yep. Laws that said words like infiltration of Negroes. I mean, it's not funny. It is just like it the- ain't funny. Like I walk through my neighborhood and I think to myself, somebody in this neighborhood owns a home that is owned by a family that was owned previously by a family member who would not have wanted me to infiltrate this block I'm on. Yep. Like infestation, they use words like that. We was infesting y'all. God Nothing like that. So I keep having to pause. I mean. Yeah. And for people that equally frustrating is that you know there's this whole like world of people who are not keen on the idea of structural racism. I'm like, don't even call it that if you don't want to call it that. Fine, right? But call it. This is American history where there were like things in place set up for people to lose. Now, if you don't want to call that structural racism, then don't. But but guess what? We are here. Yep. Here on nowhere. What infesting and infiltrating left <laughs> and right. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I have to unearth myself from all the feelings.
1: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I mean, misery loves company. And I guess
0: moral distress loves company,
1: too. Yeah, it's me. all
0: good, though. But, you know, when you talk about resilience, I, the, the immediate story that pops into my mind was when my my grandfather, this is literally two generations back, moved into the suburb in Chicago, which is where I spent part of my childhood growing up did like the first couple months that they had moved in that neighborhood. They were one of like the first black families there and a neighbor set their car on fire in the middle of the night. And um, it was actually another, it was another neighbor, a white man who came and woke up my grandfather, mm. like banged on the door to let them know that the car was on fire.
1: Mm.
0: Ironically enough, it started raining mm. that night, put the fire out. And then he went to take the car to... The shop the next day, and also found out that the guy had tried to cut the brakes as well.
1: Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Wow!
0: Because of the audacity of my family to infest the neighborhood mm. with their dark skin,
1: mm. but we still here. Child. Still here. Still here, like a mug and <laughs> wow. girl. Isn't it crazy though that like whenever you hear about all of the things that have made it hard to be black, what a joy it is though. Oh my god,
0: <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's just like you know the, the the history and and the present is is painful in so many ways, but you know it's the the irony that you know that that beauty that comes through that struggle. Not that I would opt to, to struggle, but it just you know I'm just so proud of my my heritage and that that survivorship that runs in my in my blood you know I look at my my own family and I'm just which I actually got to see my entire family on zoom this weekend as
1: uh,
0: one year uh, to the date of when my my grandmother passed which is Mm -hmm. but um, you know just the the love that we shared for each other I just oh my god I was so full afterwards
1: I love it yeah that's real I mean so I just don't want anybody ever to get it twisted that like while we can embrace history and it hurts to think about all that has happened um to to people who look like us and the people who who were before us our ancestors our immediate ancestors it's it's still so lit to be black <laughs> <laughs> right. word on the street is that you have a story for me today.
0: I do. And it's so fitting with our prior conversation because the word is potential.
1: Ooh, potential. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Okay.
0: All right. So let's bring it back then. I am a fourth year medical student. And like many of our fourth years around this time of year, I was preparing for my upcoming interview season. Okay. And Mm -hmm. so this is the year where you're kind of really gaining momentum in terms of, you know, where you might want to go for residency, which is basically where you get that on the job training for the specialty of your choice. So residency prepares you for board certification, which again, is that plaque on the wall that says so-and-so is ready to go for orthopedic surgery or, Bonafide. yeah, <laughs> radiology, <laughs> internal medicine, Peds, whatever, whatever is your flavor. Yeah. So I was uh, getting ready to apply into residency for internal medicine and I was hyped. I was ready to go mm-hmm. kind of the last thing on my, on my schedule before kind of going into a bunch of electives and, you know, the, the regular season of, of interviews and getting ready for graduation was my internal medicine sub-I. So sub-I is a sub-internship, as you know, where as a fourth year medical student, you're kind of in the space where you're trying to function as an intern. It's kind of like the last kind of practice before you get into the real thing. Right. Yeah. Make sure you're not an assassin. Exactly. (laughs) So it was um, also kind of the rotation where you want to try to perform pretty well. Cause you, yeah. you, those are the rotations you might consider for getting either a good evaluation or like a letter of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had done my sub I a little bit later in the year, just because I had done an away rotation previously okay. at an institution that I was considering for, for residency. And I will say that, you know, the internal medicine residency program at this particular institution was one that we would consider
1: competitive. Um, are one of those places that 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 because we know there are many great places for mm-hmm. training, but there's some places that are just sexy on paper, right? Yeah. You know, because it's known and people kind of see it as elite. There are definitely some residency programs or hospital systems that are considered elite. Exactly.
0: So got to spend a month at this program. Had a really good experience there. Felt welcomed and and seen, and got to connect with a lot of folks that could have been potential mentors for me, um, and so. I come back to my medical school to start my sub internship, and I remember that I had, you know, this I had a really excellent team. You know, shout out to my my senior resident, Dr. Ahmed, who was phenomenal. But I had a an attending who was maybe a little bit more absent. I would say. Okay. And I remember um, one weekend in particular. And this attending actually was, was often, it was a a substitute attending who did not know anything about me. He was kind of high up in the educational space, educational leadership. We were walking on rounds and I remember we had somehow gotten on the subject of, I was getting ready to apply for residency Mm -hmm. and he asked me, okay, what, what programs are you considering? And so I had mentioned the institution that I had just done this away rotation at, Mm. you know, and I didn't tell him I had done an away rotation there. I just mentioned this is the program that I think I would really like to go to. And his Mm. immediate response was, "Mm, I think you should aim for these programs. And he mentioned some programs that were were also great, but not quite as elite as the program that I was really aiming for, the one that I had just mentioned. Mm. I don't remember what happened after that. I know I didn't respond.
1: I don't know. It was a a little jarring. Mm. Did he like know you from Adam? Like, what did he know about? Nothing. He he knew that I was a medical student. That Mm. was it. You know,
0: we didn't sit down. He didn't ask me any kind of background or didn't ask me about my scores, my grades. No, nothing. Mm. And he didn't know that I'd just actually gotten off the phone with the division chief um, at this institution who was making me feel like, hey, this is a place that, you know, you should apply to. We'd really love to see your application. Like, I'd just gotten off the phone (laughs) with this person. And then here I have my attending telling me I should not apply there. Mm. He basically told me I needed to aim a little bit lower on the tier for for no reason other than what he deemed in that moment to be my potential. Mm. And granted, you know, I, I imagine that there are folks who might be listening and feel like, you know, there are multiple ways to interpret this. That's given the the medical school where I was at, it is true that the vast majority of our medical students match to places like the institutions that he was mentioning, which were Again, great programs that were a little bit more close to the region and in Texas, where I went to medical school.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then something else happened. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So this, this person, the substitute attending had gone off service, and then my regular attending came back. And um, I was kind of debating whether or not I needed, I should get a letter from this attending. Granted, I already had kind of my application pretty set. And so I was like, ah, well, he, you know, he, he is technically my supervisor on this sub, I said, I should talk to him. So we set up a meeting in his office.
1: Nervous.
0: (laughs) Hang in there, sis. I'm going to land this plane. So I set up a meeting in, in his office and same thing, you know, what, what programs are you interested in? And I mentioned again, this, this program that I had already rotated at that I had formed relationships with attendings and mentors there and felt welcomed into that space. And his response was, you know, you could go to such and such program and be a small fish in a big pond, or you could stay here and be chief resident. Uh... You know, and this was my my. Sub I attending, so theoretically, like he's seen me a, slightly more than the person who was there over the weekend, but at the same time did not ask me anything about my scores, anything about, you know, why I was interested in the programs that I was interested in, nothing. Mm-hmm. And yet here you are telling me what I am capable of. Mm. Mm. Ugh. <laughs> so that latter story, I actually um, tweeted about that. Mm. God, that was two years ago is my one and only viral tweet. Mm. And I saw that someone had recently reposted that keeping in time with the upcoming interview season.
1: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it got me
0: thinking about it uh, again. And, you know, we keep asking these questions of, you know, why can't we get diverse applicants? And I think that my story is not unique.
1: Mm-mm.
0: In fact, I, am, I feel incredibly blessed because I already had other mentors mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: who knew my potential.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And those were the folks who I was listening to. So I didn't really feel any type of way about these other individuals who were supposedly in my corner telling me what I
1: could and couldn't do. Mm you also had your mom and your grandmother and your grandfather, and you had all these people who had you seeing yourself in a certain way, because gosh, the most scary thing about that story is that if it had landed on far more vulnerable ears, that could have been a defining moment. And I bet you that person, both of those people thought they were doing you a favor.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm at a point now where I'm, I don't think it takes anything away from me to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I remember posting this online and here come the comments, we're just like, well, how do you know it was racist? Yada, yada, yada. Oh, I'm
1: sorry, maybe it was sexist. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> right.
0: Whatever, whatever it is, you know, whatever reasoning behind it, you know, there there's something about me. <laughs> My outward appearance without any kind of reference to my my performance, my scores, my ability, but just mm. my, my front facing appearance that
1: mm. brings up presumptions about what I have potential for. I mean, that's that's really like that's the thing. It was like, oh, <laughs> you know, for those who like EBM, what's the likelihood ratio that this medical student is going to go to this elite program and win? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess low, <laughs> I guess in the negatives, because they're suggesting they're already revising your future for you. Basically. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. Terrible, terrible in common. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's
0: unfortunate. And I, I realize that now that I am, again, blessed to be in a position where I can serve a, in that mentoring role. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that strikes me, particularly when I mentor students of color is that many of them have already been told not to aim high Mm -hmm. and often not for reasons that were valid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or told things too late at a late stage in the game, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because I, I, I think that, you know, as I unpack your story, I think what, what to me is most fraught with peril about it all is that. The person sight unseen basically looked at you and sized you up, which is which is bias, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then said to you, "Oh, these places that you are naming that are elite places that ain't for you for whatever whatever reason." That was a microaggression, and and that that's not cool. But what is also sad too is when there are people who do have data points that have been looked at. Mm -hmm. um, and, and important information that would allow them not to go thousands of dollars into debt and, or to make a wrong choice that could present that information to somebody in a trusting relationship and, and get, and get some sound advice. Um, absolutely. You know, the truth is there is sometimes a time where somebody could tell you that, right. Um, but you need more information. Like I need to know, like, Oh, if you honored medicine, and got honors on all your clerkships, busted out step one, and you were a student leader. Yeah, you know, those programs are going to be very interested in you. But probably, you know, if you had to remediate several things, you had a lot of trouble with the boards, um, some professionalism issues and everything, and the person talking to you has seen all your stuff, then from a loving place, they might be able to guide you into a place that is a good fit for you, where you will also have the kind of support that you need. But Mm -hmm. Just to say that. that <laughs> exactly. And I, and I think sometimes you just have to present the information and let them decide for themselves because mm-hmm. I also don't ever want to be the person that somebody can look back and say, you know, Kimberly Manning, I met with her and she told me um, that I was not competitive for medical school. Mm-hmm. She told me blank. That's why I would like, to, I, I, I prefer to talk to people very very early in the game like you know pl- it's 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 heartbreaking to talk to somebody who is a senior in college and who has a 2.9 gpa um and you know uh, mcat in the 400s and, and if you're one of those people that's listening that this doesn't mean you can't be a doctor it just means that it's much harder to intervene and and sponsor you at that stage um, mm-hmm. So if you're telling me, should I take the MCAT right now? And I say, well, what all have you done? I don't know if you're ready yet. Why don't we do this, 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 and this so mm-hmm. really do well? That that that's that's critical advice that people need. Um, you know, so I'm just I'm I'm just hoping that the people that do step into our space to mentor or to offer advice, that they do so rooted in something other than your brown skin. Mm-hmm. And maybe it wasn't how this person thinks of Black women, but it was something. Yeah, exactly. I think to get into the argument of trying to name what it is,
0: is beside the point. And this is often where the conversations ends up devolving to, and then, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is there's been people who have been highlighting the critical discrepancy Mm -hmm. in physicians of color, specifically Black physicians. Mm -hmm. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for years. And then we try to figure out, well, what is it? Like, why aren't they applying? Mm -hmm. And if you get a hundred black people in the room and ask them to raise their hand, if they've had someone discourage them from doing something that they wanted to do, I'm willing to put my paycheck on the line that say at least 85 people will raise their hands.
1: Yep. Yep. And especially the ones that are, the Lakeishas, the Tyrone's, and mm-hmm. the ones who are descendants of slavery survivors. Because there's even a minority within our minority group that kind of feels that sting sometimes a little different, as mm-hmm. you know, just because I look at your name, I think you're academic risk and I think you probably are not likely to, to, to rock it. And you know, there's this part of you that says, well, OK, but then I could just have my mic drop moment where I can be like, well, boom, suckers. This is what happened. Guess what? I did go to an elite program and guess what? I was the chief president. <laughs> um, but but when you get by yourself, you know, it still hurts. It yeah. Still hurts. And then you can't help but start to ask, well, OK, am I so strong in my self-image that I know that this was really all you? Or am I really inside still just a girl who wants to be liked and who's now wondering, what did I do? What did I give off that made you think that the best I could aim for was sort of the high middle of the pack and not the top? Mm -hmm. What made you think that, you know, me just grabbing the lowest cloud, the stars ain't really for me? Yeah. So this is, this is the cognitive load that is born. You know, it, it's really easy to make it seem like these people that we described, because you know, you did not, you did gender the person, but I don't know the race of the person who said it to you. I don't, I don't know any of that, but, but regardless of any of that, what I know is that we all are biased and we all fall short and we all have these things happen where these awful things slip out. It happens to more, some people more than others. So I'm not, not like giving this person a complete pass, but I'm just thinking to myself, like, I feel sorry for him and anybody, myself included, that ever underestimates somebody and it makes them invisible so much so that I miss out on what could happen if that person is allowed to work to their full potential and mm-hmm. shine. And I think that there's probably been times where I may have done something like that. I would like to think that it wasn't that egregious, but (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, but okay. So that was, that was professional me, professional senior faculty, me who, you know, now I'm a step out of that role and I'm a step over into my other role, which is the big sister Of Ashley McMullen, who's older than her, who has come down to the playground to find out what in the world did you say to my little sister? So this is for you person who told my little sister that she ought to aim for something more mediocre. Let me tell you one damn thing. And yes, I mean to cuss. She is brilliant. She comes from great stock. She was raised in love. She was cherished she is brilliant she is a thinker she knows who she is and she is a descendant of some of the most resilient most capable most strong most filled with fight people that there are and let me tell you something you my friend are the one who will lose (laughs) there you go that felt good thank you that felt good for me as well I know I felt like like, it reminds me of my, um, my late sister, Deanna. That's something she would have done. Although there may or may not have been violence involved. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you had it in you to know who you were. Absolutely. All right. Well, sis, I love you dearly. I love you too, sis. I hope that uh, somebody heard this story and can take a little bit of your strength and um, use it for themselves as they go into this interview season.
0: Amen. And if folks on here need some strength, give us a call.
1: We, we got you. I'll add your girls.
0: <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of the
1: human doctor podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother, gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production.
0: Mad love to our podcast family at the Nocturnus and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our Med Twitter fam. And especially
1: shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember we see you and you are enough. Hala.